It's the middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. Taking a step back to look at things with a new perspective. It's the middle with Anthony Weiner. And good afternoon. I'm Anthony Weiner. Thank you for meeting me in the middle an hour every Saturday at 2 o'clock when we take some steps away from the hot takes of the far left and the far right and try to bring some context to the news of the week or maybe a subject that hasn't found its way into the middle of the conversation enough. Good show for you today. A little bit of some somber topics, some topics that are definitely contentious. Later, we'll be joined by Stephen Yang, who's a journalist at the New York Post who Spend time with a shoplifter, but as you will hear, the story is not what you may imagine, unless that is, unless you have a family member or a friend who struggles with addiction, and you know my history, you know the story of my brother around that, so you're going to want to stick around. That'll be at the bottom of the hour. i got to say, it's an emotional day, not just the, because of the substance, but uh, tune in to be part of it anyway. We'd love to have you, whatever side you are in these issues this week, this is a place where you try to find some middle ground. It is hard, admittedly, with the subjects at hand. 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. We've got Rich, Diego, Matt, Ryan, the whole gang on the other side of the glass helping to take care of you. Uh, when you call in, you are essential to this conversation. Left versus Right with Curtis will be on at 3 o'clock. He will join us and talk some of these issues as well. You can hear us every week. And you can download the WABC radio app or hear past episodes of the middle on the Red Apple Podcast Network, Spotify, Google, all those different places. So it's a little bit of a heavy day for me uh, this morning, and I know that this is something that I have in common with a lot of parents this weekend. Um, Jordan left for camp. He's going to be away for a while at sleepaway camp. This is a camp he's not been at before. You know, he kind of swaggered into the into the week. You know, he you know saying he was looking forward to it, and his uh, his cousin also goes to this camp, so he's looking forward to hanging out with his cousin. But then at the end, he was anxious. His mom was anxious. We were all kind of very emotional, like when they start going away. He's 10. Uh, he and I spend a lot of time together. Weekends, usually on Saturday mornings, we're going to play hockey. I put, packed his hockey bag. He's going to a camp where he's going to get to play hockey for a couple of days um, this summer. Very emotional. I don't know what to tell you. Also, it leaves a giant kind of, I don't know, not only an emotional but a mental void in my life as well. Like so much of my life is scheduled around spending time with him. And um, so I'm going to miss him. Uh, so I sound a little bit off today. That's part of the reason. Um, also, this week was a heavy week for me in an, for, for another reason. I know it's a conversation we've had a little bit here on the radio. It's not really something that I sense that the audience of the middle cares a great deal about. But I returned to Twitter for the purpose of announcing – that the show was up and live and all the past episodes were out there. Um, but for me, as you know, my greatest times of public embarrassment, ultimately what led me into treatment um, for my addiction, it's all started because I was on Twitter. And so going on there, even just to post something, I got a very dear friend of mine to keep an eye on the posts. And I, I didn't visit pod, I didn't visit Twitter to kind of keep an eye on it. I told Stephanie, who's the amazing social media manager here at the station, to keep an eye on it. Um, and I'm just not – to me, it's PTSD. It's like so much of my trauma was around it. And it's not – there's nothing wrong with 
you know, you know my beefs with Twitter and social media in general, but it is not, it's not that that was to blame for anything that happened to me. Um, my addiction was mine, and it, if it wasn't Twitter, it would have been something else. But it is certainly, when I went back onto Rep Wiener, which is my Twitter handle, and posted for the first time in, I guess, eight years or something like that, it created a very emotional and, you know, I mean, I've been – you know, had to go to a couple of recovery meetings and basically really be grounded this week. And so it's still weighing on me um, a little bit. Um, and for those of you who followed the Stanley Cup last night, three to two now, the series, Colorado jumped up to a three to one lead on a controversial too many men on the ice penalty. And then yesterday, um, or too many men on the ice that didn't get called in the overtime goal. Just for for those of you who are unfamiliar with hockey and who are watching this only tangentially, the whole notion of how do you have too many players on the field, it's not like football where, you know, a substitution happens, the guy doesn't get off the field in time. Hockey is the only sport that has on-the-fly changing of personnel. And generally a shift for a hockey player in, in the NHL is about 40 seconds. A defenseman will stay on a little bit longer. And the coming and going of players is something that is unique to the game. And it is something that has a rule around it that while it has a little bit of specificity, it has a lot of judgment that's left to the referee and they consult with the linesman also. And what it basically says is that if you're replacing someone that's coming off the ice, that player that you're replacing has to be within five feet of the bench and has to basically have surrendered. Basically, they're not participating in the play anymore. And in game four, there was a situation where the player jumped on long before uh, when the other player was 42 feet away from reaching the bench and more than five seconds, it was a while, and it was a clear case of, of offsides. And then last night it happened again, and this time it resulted in a penalty against Colorado at a crucial time. And the reason that they're happening while we're having more controversies around this is just the intensity of Stanley Cup hockey is different, so the rhythm of the changes are different. In a Stanley Cup game as opposed to a, regular, a regulation game, the guys are jumping on the ice with a lot more energy and zip. They're really ready to go. They're playing much harder than they would in a regular season game. And the same is true for the guys coming off. They're coming off much slower because they have burnt much more gas in their tank than they might have in a shift. And also, frankly, all these things are getting looked at much more carefully. For those of you who are like myself, Islander fan, you know, we know we got burned by this when Tampa had literally seven men on the ice for a goal in the playoffs last year. Um, but three to two, Darcy Kemper is showing that. If Colorado's going to win the series, he's got to be a lot better. I'm glad the series extended. I still think Tampa pulls it out in seven. But earlier on another inter- in an interview, I said Colorado a couple of months ago. So either way, I'm probably going to wind up winning. Um, we'd like to do some numbers of the week on the middle. And like I said, if you want to get in on the conversation, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Uh, eight, that is the number of Department of Justice top brass that said that they, as it, that we found out in the January 6th hearing this week, the entire top rash of the Justice Department said that they would resign en masse if this one environmental lawyer that had become the favorite um, for the conspiracy theories, if they sent a letter to the state of Georgia saying that there were some questions about the election, there was no one at the Department of Justice that had any questions about it, so they all threatened to resign. And as it turns out, according to the hearings we heard this week, the fact that they all threatened to quit, uh, the president at the time, and I'm trying not to mention his name, uh, did not go ahead with sending that letter, which might have thrown things into dis- into, into more um, chaos. 83 is the number this week. 83 is the number of billions of dollars that Texas gets each year from the Department of Defense. And why am I mentioning that number? Because the Republican Party of Texas in their convention's um, platform 
said they wanted to secede from the state, from the country. As you remember, for uh, 10 years in the 1830s, they were their own republic. I'm in favor of this. First of all, we'll save that money, but also think about it. We would lose about 20 Republican congressmen and two Republican senators. Sign me up. So maybe the Republican Party of Texas will be successful in their effort. This uh, this week, also 10 was a number in the news. That is the number of days under the new gun legislation that was passed bipartisan, ironically, given what else would happen in the Supreme Court this week. And I'll get to that in a minute. Now you'll have 10 days if you're between 18 and 21 and you're trying to get a gun rather than a three day deadline for a background check. They will be able to do a 10 day background check um, to see if um, if you have any data in your juvenile record that makes you susceptible. It's one of a few provisions that I don't think anyone thinks are earth shattering, but they are noteworthy in that they're the first changes, the first true kind of reform of our gun laws that we've had in a positive direction um, in a very long time. And the final number comes from one of the dumbest decisions of the week by President Biden to propose a gas tax holiday for the week. And that's $2.75, That's how much you will save if you have a 15-gallon gas tank at 18.3 cents a gallon. It works out to $2.75. Now, that is your tax bonus that we think is going to make things a lot better. But if you take the Long Island Railroad or the subway, you're not going to get a tax rebate. Actually, you're going to wind up paying for it because the Highway Trust Fund, which pays for repairs, the Long Island Railroad pays for new cars for the subway. That's where the money will be coming from. And if you have a fuel-efficient car and you only drive 10 miles or you have 30 miles a gallon, you're going to get a less of a tax break. So if you think that makes any sense, you're the only one. And, oh, by the way, if you're one of the people out there that thinks that if you lower the price of gas by 18.3 cents a gallon, that's the tax, if you eliminate that tax, that suddenly all those gas station owners and oil companies are going to say, oh, we're going to lower our price by 18.3 cents, you are just wrong. It's a dumb idea. I'm a supporter of President Biden. I think he's doing the best he can under bad circumstances. But this is politics run amok. So I'm bearing the lead uh, because you've heard a lot here for the last couple of weeks about the oncoming decision in the Roe v. Wade um, being overturned. Not a lot was surprising. In fact, the final decision that came out was almost exactly, the Alito decision was almost exactly as was leaked uh, a couple of weeks ago. You did get to see the the concurring opinions. You did get to see the dissenting opinions. You did get to see just how lame um, Justice Roberts is now. He's no longer, it's no longer the Roberts court. Um, he tried as best he could to try to go incrementally, but failed to do it. But before we get to that decision, even, you know, in a week of Supreme Court decisions, one that affected New York, the so-called Bruin decision, struck down something that had not really been in place that long, which was the Heller case. The Heller case did a couple of big things. Back about 10 years ago, it said that there is an individual right to bear arms, although it refers to a well-regulated militia in the Constitution, they said there is an individual right. And they set up this two-part thing, which said, okay, first, is it really something, is it really a um, a Second Amendment case, meaning there are some things that clearly aren't, like if you're mentally deficient or if you're a felon, things like that. That's not really a Second Amendment case because there's other reasons why we're preventing those people from being armed. But then had this second piece basically saying, okay, does it have a sound basis in law? You know, can, does it make sense? And... The decision that came out this week threw out this 1913 law that basically banned concealed carry here and in five other states. Basically, it's about 20 percent of the population. 
and left in place basically nothing. Basically said you've got to go back and look at the historical context to see if it makes sense to have the restriction. I don't know how you look at a historical context, whether it's there should be a law against having guns on a plane. I don't know how you look at the historical context on domestic violence when there wasn't even a domestic abuse clause in the in, in the laws at the time. I don't know how you look at 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 um, at 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 what is a, a reasonable uh, historically grounded gun restriction when so much of what we have today isn't it's hard to figure out. And so the court went out of its way to say, oh, wait, don't worry. Still, if you have sensitive areas, you can still have gun restrictions. Well, what is New York City? Funny thing is, in the decision, it said you can decide to have polling places, which we don't have. You, you can decide to not let people carry around guns around polling places. We don't have that law right now, but, you know, this is an election time. So, you know, we have polling places on every three blocks. Our subway, is every subway station a potentially sensitive spot? So the law leaves us really nowhere, except that it does, ironically, give people a right to have a gun in their waistband. At the same time, they took away a right that was a constitutional right for over 50 years from half the population to make one particular decision about their health care. And I don't know, you know, look, I've shared with you about this. You can go back and listen to Episode 7 when this first came out. I've talked to a little bit about this. But, you know, a a poll came out this week that showed that the Supreme Court has a favorability of about 25 percent right down there with members of Congress. Um, and the reason is the appearance clearly is that that, you know, the mythology about the judicial branch being above politics is just being laid to bear. You know, when these new justices came on to the court, they only they did what they thought their job was. They thought their job is to be extensions of the political process. They campaigned for these jobs. They did it much the way that sometimes politicians campaign for the job by telling the voters, meaning the Senate, exactly what they wanted to hear. Curtis and I are going to talk about this a little later, but they basically lied because they said they would respect stare decisis, the rule of the rule of law, precedent. Um, and now here we are. And every, and now we have to wonder, well, where does this leave it? I mean, ab- abortion won't go away. Um, big companies are already rallying, telling their employees that they're going to pay them extra give them extra benefits so they can travel to get an abortion. Um, Dick's Sporting Goods, $4,000 they're giving their employees that they need to travel, travel expenses to, 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 to if they want to, if they, if they need to, to get an abortion. But I got to tell you where it winds up leaving us is this place where the credibility of the court. Now you've taken a gun in one week, you took gun, a gun regulation, which is very, very popular across the country and a right, which, I mean, I defy anyone to call up and tell me I'm wrong, but and uh, that's 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Is there any other instance where the Supreme Court took away a constitutional right? The Supreme Court has made progress by adding constitutional rights. And for those of you who, who read the decision, and a lot of people did, this is big, big news, this, this whole idea that is articulated in the Alito decision that, okay, well, anything that wasn't in place at the time of the 14th Amendment is not a foundational right. Dude, women didn't participate in that, in, in writing the Constitution at that point or making any of those laws because they couldn't even vote. So to make that the line of, the, of delineation, it just reinforces just how unpopular these decisions are. Now, some people would say correctly, they're not supposed to, the Supreme Court's not supposed to be in the position of just doing things that are popular. 
But if you're going to, to take away a right, which which is what they're doing, it's not like there's two competing rights. They're taking away a right. And, and, and I do have time if you want to call in and suggest that the unborn baby is an equal person to the woman. Um, but, you know, this is taking away a right. And you may say to yourself, well, that's what the job of the Supreme Court is. Well, let's remember something. When we talk about the historical role of the Supreme Court, who gave the Supreme Court the right to determine whether a law is constitutional or not? That's not in the Constitution. That's not in Article 3. That's something that was decided on by the courts. In 1803, it was decided in Mar- Marbury v. Madison. It, up to that point, there were three equal parts of government, but but the, the, there was nothing in the Constitution that says the Supreme Court gets to decide that a law of Congress is constitutional or an act of the executive branch is constitutional. They didn't get to do that. And then judicial review was born. By the way, it's interesting to note is by a vote of four to nothing. There were only six Supreme Court justices at the time when John Marshall wrote that decision. But judicial review was the court saying we need someone to be able to take to make this decision because that's what these conflicts are going to be about. And they agreed. The president at the time agreed. The Congress at the time and everyone since has kind of gone along. Why? Because we need one part of government that's not just rawly political. Majority rules with the executive branch, although we've had a couple of presidents recently who haven't had a majority. Majority rules when the legislature. That's not the only standard that we should have. But it is something that the court has to keep in mind for its own credibility, for its own ability to rule. They have to be looking out and saying, hey, okay, This has been in place for 50-something years. It is a right. It is a popular right. It is not perfect. Alito's not wrong about that. Yes, it is not a perfect decision. It is a decision that essentially tries to strike competing interests and come up with a workable thing that has worked. Roe has worked. And then to say, okay, we are going to do this, make this change, simply because we now have the votes to do it is not what people considered, not the way the court has proceeded for generations. And now it is. It's just another political arm. And when we get back, I'd love to hear what you have to say. 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Curtis coming in at 3 o'clock. And at the bottom of the hour, we're going to hear from a fascinating guy, uh, Stephen Yang, who did this great story in the New York Post. You might want to go pull it up about um, someone that he followed around for a few days who is really... It's a portrait of a lot of things that are troubling our society today. I hope you stick around for that. It's great to hear you here in the middle. I'm Anthony Weiner. See you on the other side. Finding new ways to make change. Reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. And welcome back to The Middle. Every Saturday at 2 to 3, we try to find the middle ground. We try to meet meet each other in the middle. Um, And, you know, if you want to be part of this conversation, I've said it so many times, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. The best part of this program is when people weigh in, when they challenge the assumptions, when they themselves show they're willing to step towards the middle. Also, wienerwabc at gmail.com, at repwiener. You can download the app so you can hear this wherever you are, wabcradio.com. A little later on, we're going to hear from a journalist who 
spent some time with um, a former member of the NYFD who is now a shoplifter. So we're going to get to hear that story. It's a fascinating story from the New York Post. And just before we we go to the calls, um, I just want to read just one part of the dissent. We had the decision. Alito's decision was out for a while. I've read some of that when I did this episode back on Episode 7. This is from the dissent, and all three dissenters signed on to it. Quote, those responsible for the original Constitution, including the 14th Amendment, did not perceive women as equals and did not recognize women's rights. When the majority says that we must read our foundational charter as viewed at the time of ratification, except that we may also check it against the Dark Ages, it consigns women to second-class citizenship. Just to put that in context, what Alito had argued is that there was no mention of abortion in the Constitution. True. <laughs> True. And he says that until the 14th Amendment, the, you know, and not the, the, the equal protection part, which is probably where this decision should have rested in the first place, but in the due process part, until the 14th Amendment passed, you know, if you didn't have anything at that point, that's what this originalist argument. Well, what the dissent is saying, well, in that case, you're going to leave out all kinds of rights that women, uh, that women have. In, and by the way, it, think about all the other rights that have emerged since then. That also were not in vogue then. You think um, uh, um, interracial marriage, for example, gay marriage, uh, lots of of, of con- uh, 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 contraception. All these decisions, they came after the Fourteenth Amendment. So let's see um, w- where this leads. I know there was language in Alito said, "Don't oh, don't worry about those. We don't mean to change those." And then. Um, Justice Thomas said, oh, yeah, actually, I'm cool going back and looking at all those. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Hopefully we'll, 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 we'll get some interesting calls. A lot of people on the board. I know how passionately people feel about this issue. And that's why one of the reasons I was looking forward to doing this program today. Let's go to the calls. If you'd like to be part of it, 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Let's go to, uh, to John on Staten Island. John, thanks for holding on today. Appreciate it. John, are you there? John, uh, John, uh, uh, call us back if you if you if you get well. We'll connect you right away. Uh, Steve in Brooklyn, go ahead, Steve. Uh, yes, I'd like to um, fairly debate and dispute the premise you said about this is the first time rights are taken away. It is true that uh, our secondary document is called the Bill of Rights. I agree with you on that. However, the traditional American social contract has always been based on the expression rights and responsibilities. And I haven't heard anyone, uh, and the two, by the way, were like an equally balanced seesaw. Um, I have not heard anyone uh, say anything about the fact that many of the responsibilities have been taken away from people. For example, if I might, um, at the Mexican-Texas border, it is also a responsibility for people coming into the country to um, follow the usual procedures by which people would file forms in order to uh, immigrate here legally. That responsibility has been completely abridged by the Democratic administration. There are many other similar responsibilities um, for respect for other people. Many of the demonstrations that took place in New York City bore no responsibility whatsoever for the damage that the demonstrators or protesters did in burning out stores. So what you mentioned, while it is a partially stated truth, is not the complete story. 
Well, let me let me just stop you there, Steve. I mean, let me just interrupt you. First, you you make a good point. I I myself comment frequently about the balance that we have of rights and responsibilities. But the right, meaning what we are protected from government stopping us from doing things, that's basically what a right is, what I'm allowed to do without government getting in the way. Can you name another one that the Supreme Court has taken away? Interrupt a second. A responsibility is also what I might do without the government monitoring. I understand. And and that's manifested by legislatures frequently, usually not in the Constitution. I'm not saying never, but usually not in the Constitution. The responsibilities usually uh, are in the first, second, and third um, section of the Constitution to talk about the responsibilities of the the lawmakers and the president. But I'm talking about rights. So I return to Steve. The ball's back in your court. Can you tell me a right that the Supreme Court has taken away? Um. I cannot say one off you, hand. I'm you, not a lawyer. You cannot say, but you don't have to be a lawyer. Just you, you're, you've been around the, the planet Earth and, and America for a while. You know that's not the way this goes. And I really appreciate your calling, Steve. It's a very thoughtful call. I agree with you. There are responsibilities. They are usually manifested by legislatures in the law to say, here's what the responsibilities are as citizens. And I'm fine. If someone wants to say that, that someone should be held responsible for committing a crime, I'm pretty sure that most of the things that Steve mentioned are already violations of the law. This is a right of 50% of our country has and has had for 50 years. That's that's a big difference. Uh, Anthony on Long Island. Anthony, thank you for holding on. I appreciate it. Hi, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Good. Correct me if I'm wrong. You keep saying that the, the Supreme Court took away someone's rights. They didn't take away the rights. They gave it to the states to decide. No, they but state, anyone's rights no they away. gave it to state legislatures to decide. Okay, so then a right is something right. that can't be, Anthony, a right is something that cannot be abridged. You have the right to speech, except for time, manner, and place restrictions, it cannot be abridged. These are your rights. They are unalienable. You get them. Government can't take them away. What the Supreme Court says is no, they are not rights. If a lawmaker in Mississippi says it is not your right, it ain't. And today, 25 some odd states, that is not a right for, that's the Constitution doesn't say if you know, you're in Mississippi, you get to do a thing. And if you're in New York, you get to do a thing. That's the opposite of a right. Then it's up to the legislature. Let me ask you one sure. other question. Sure. Are you deliberately trying to mislead the public, or are you just, are you just uh, going on a strict Democrat? Uh, Anthony, I'm giving you a chance to say your piece. I'm giving you a chance to say your piece. If I wanted to deceive anyone, I wouldn't let you on the air. Go ahead. Tell me your piece. So speak your piece, my man. I, I, I just said it. I, they didn't take anyone's rights away. All right. And let that, me ask you this. Let me ask you. If I have a right, does that mean a government can't take it from me, right? You said, you said you're going to let me talk. In the same breath, you say that about the, the carrying guns is not a right. That's a right. That is a right put directly into the Constitution. You, you, it's a right. That, that's a right. And and all right, Anthony, right. You, Anthony, you can't say I'm deceiving the public when, when I say something you don't respond to it. If the state of Mississippi t- takes something from a woman, uh, uh, the, the ability to have this reproductive choice, it's not a right if they can take it from her, is it? But you're saying the Supreme Court took it away. They did not take it they away. They did. The there is no constitutional right to abortion today, Anthony, period, full stop. There is not. There's not a constitutional right. If it's up to a legislator in Mississippi, that's the opposite of a right. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I know. I, I, I mean, I listen, I'm just trying to make a, a point of the difference and distinction that we're making here is that if you say it's up to a legislature to decide, it is not up to a person. So that person has lost the right 
to make the decision for themselves, and you've given it to a legislator in Albany. That ain't a right. It's no longer my right. I can't go to a court and say, oh, sorry, that legislator took, took that right for me, they, because the court has now taken that away. Uh, let's go to Mark in Long Island. Mark, thank you so much for calling. Hey, Anthony. Yeah, um, the reason, uh, one of the things that you had just brought up, it seems like you're holding two different points, because the thing is, is in New York, a legislature in New York can rule on my gun rights, right, until it turns out that the, 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 the Supreme Court comes in and says, all right, well, you know what? That's a federally guaranteed right. New York can't legislate against it. So that's the example that you just gave if some legislature in Mississippi wants to change the right for abortion. Well, the abortion isn't a guaranteed right. If you think about it this way, uh, you look at the 10th Amendment, you look at the Reserve Powers Clause, any, any, any power is not expressly given to the federal government or reserved to the states. Abortion isn't a specific right given in the Constitution. It's an implied right, was even what the original ruling in Roe was. The Supreme Court's now said, hey, you know what? We don't have the constitutional authority to govern this. And as a result, it'll then go to the states where people can then elect their representatives, and those representatives can then determine what should happen in terms of abortion in that state. Exactly. On the flip side with, on the flip side with guns, yeah, you know what? The New York state legislature can't make laws against against when the, the people that can carry guns or, or your, your limited permitting because of equal protection under the law because the New York legislature doesn't have the authority to legislate that constitutionally. No, I, I, I think I think that's a perfect summary. That's a perfect summary, except the problem is, is that in the state, in the case of the Second Amendment, they are narrowing and narrowing the time, place, the, the, the limitations around it. all amendments have some limitation. All constitutional rights have some limitations to them, including the right of speech. And, and in the case of, of abortion, they're saying this right does not even exist. Let's face it, Roe and Casey were modifications of a, of a right that they found in, 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 in the, in the Constitution. Now, I, I think that, that Justice Ginsburg was right. Probably it should have been in equal protection, um, rather than in due process. But putting that aside, the, the way these two things work together is, in the case, if we were just having a conversation here that Roberts wanted us to have, where basically the right to abortion got limited in some way, went from 21 weeks to 13 weeks or something like that, it'd be a different conversation. But Alito was crystal clear. There is not a right. There's not a right anywhere in the Constitution as far as he sees it and, and in, the, in the evolution of our state that, that, that has this right to abortion. Now, and all I'm, I'm pointing out is that's true of a lot of things. If you're going to go to the nth degree on this originalist text, there's a whole list of things that are coming down that are not in our Constitution for various reasons. In the case of this one, it's because it's, it's, it's because women didn't have an opportunity to even weigh in politically at that point. But you're right. The way these two things go together is that if, if, if there would have been a narrowing of a woman's right to choose, I would have not been happy about it. But at least I would have seen that it's consistent with this idea that we're having a narrow of this right, a narrowing of this right in keeping with some some doctrine that I'm still not clear Alito has, has articulated. Roberts has articulated that basically we don't do this. We don't just throw out rights because we have a new, a new, a newly constituted Supreme Court. And I think that's the problem. But Mark, you, you, you did an excellent job of kind of summarizing, of summarizing how those, those two things point together. And I don't think that I did anything that contradicted that. Andrew and Stanhope, thank you so much for calling. Are you there, hey, Andrew? How's it going? It's going well, my Thank you. I think um, 
I have an example of a right that uh, was taken away by the Supreme Court. The first thing, a right to life. So abortion takes away someone's life. So the question I have is that is um, when does the fetus become a baby when it's viable and females didn't have rights back when that was written? But what, what about the females that are unborn? When do they become people? When does when does the fetus become a baby and have the same rights as a woman that's out of the womb? That's a great question. And the way Andrew, thank you very much for the call. And Andrew. The answer to that is that's what Roe tried to figure out, and it was imperfect. I mean, that that part of the Alito decision I agree with, yeah, it was imperfect. It was a way to try to find a way that we can govern ourselves around a very difficult thing. I don't believe that the unborn baby at the moment that he or she has a heartbeat trumps the rights of the woman. I think now a woman being forced to bring a, to bring a baby into the, into, the, into the world, whether she's able to or not, or irrespective of whatever harm might come to her, I don't think that that strikes the balance, but there's not even a constitutional right here that is any longer at play thanks to this decision. Well, we have to go to a break. When we come back, we're going to have a very interesting conversation. We're going to be joined by a journalist from The New York Post who wrote a fascinating story that touches on a lot of the issues of crime, addiction, and the general anguish that some people deal with every single day. Thank you so much for joining us in the middle. When we get back, we'll be joined by Stephen Yang. to make change reaching across the aisle to work with both sides this is the middle with anthony weiner on wabc and welcome back to the middle herd every saturday from two to three here on wabc radio 77 the news and talk of a nation at the top of the hour, Curtis Lee will be coming. We'll talk about some of the issues of the Supreme Court and some of the issues that Mayor Adams has been facing. Uh, if you'd like to be part of the conversation, 800-848-WABC. We're going to change up a little bit now and bring in someone who, you know, I have uh, I have my problems with the New York Post. I have problems sometimes with journalists, but a remarkable piece of journalism um, by someone who uh, who went out and did the hard work of kind of looking below the surface. Uh, let me welcome to the middle, Stephen Yang. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Steve, you know, let me just set it up a little bit. You, you for a while, and you'll tell me how long you followed around someone uh, called David Gonzalez, a 42-year-old guy raised on Staten Island, attended Catholic schools, a couple of years in college, was a uh, an FDNY EMT, and now he's a drug addict and he's someone who shoplifts to support his habit. Let me just ask you, did you set out to do a story of kind of getting behind the rash of shoplifting that we've had recently? Did you meet David Gonzalez surreptitiously and became interested? Tell me a little bit about your route into this story. Sure. So as someone who covers day-to-day news in the city uh, as a freelancer, I am always kind of looking around for potential stories and things that are interesting uh, to me. And I noticed that there was a lot of drug activity uh, popping up in public. Uh, As someone who grew up in the city, I I didn't see people like shooting up and smoking crack like so openly. Um, And so I started seeing it in Washington Square Park and also in Midtown, particularly um, in the 30s. And uh, so I, you know, I started documenting the drug use and um, eventually, you know, I, I kind of wanted to get a little bit 
more personal about it and to get more, you know, deeper than just a, a, a guy passed out on the street. Um, and so I, uh, I approached a few people and they weren't really interested in participating, but um, just luckily one day uh, on 36th street, I bumped into David and I asked him, you know, right off the bat, if you'd be willing to um, be part of a story about heroin use. Um, and he immediately agreed. Um, it was actually pretty astonishing. He was so open and so ready to talk about his experiences. So uh, I got very lucky with him. Well, in addition to being open about his experiences with addiction, um, which I think a lot of our listeners are going to recognize if they have any experiences in their family or friends, he also took you along on crime sprees as he supported this addiction, didn't he? Correct. Uh, so, you know, I, uh, I I began just by asking him about his his day, you know, like, Tell me, you know, what do you do every day? Where do you go? Um, and can I just go and photograph that? So he told me he was going to do some heroin, and I was welcome to photograph that and ask him about it. Um, and then he said, well, you know, I go and I, I steal things in order to support my habit. Um, and I began asking him some questions about it. And he said, well, you're welcome to come with me if you'd like and take some photos. And over the course of the day, you know, I, I made a point to keep on asking him to make sure that it wasn't just a passing comment, that he actually was okay with me coming with him. And I was careful to kind of keep my distance, you know, while he was uh, stealing stuff. Uh, but it was very eye-opening, certainly, from my perspective. Well, you you tell the story. And for those of you who are uh, – it's going to be in the, in the show notes for the show if, when you get the podcast – um, form of this, it's FDNY firefighter turned drug addict tragically reveals the crisis on our streets by Stephen Yang. It came out on June twenty second. It actually had a uh, it, it, someone's written an editorial, so it got over two hundred comments on the story. It really has spurred a lot of reaction. You know, I can tell you, we get calls here. I see it on Fourteenth Street, not far from where I live. And even if you just walk into a drugstore nowadays, you see like virtually the entire shelf space is covered behind locks because things are getting stolen so frequently. But tell me a little bit about an experience that you write about in the story about him going on a little crime spree in Queen Center Mall. So David um, went and he goes for items that he can easily fence um, to electronic stores in Midtown, who uh, I guess uh, um, allow uh, stolen goods to be resold. Um, and he um, took me around, and, you know, a lot of the staff, they would notice him walking in, and there was even a uniformed police officer who I believe was off-duty. You know, they're allowed to, to work uh, with their uniform for private businesses off hours. Um, but the staff was sort of resigned against uh, stopping him, you know, and I think that that's there are many cases like that, you know, in drugstores, Dwayne Reed and uh, CVS. Um, I, I, my understanding is that it's because uh, detaining someone poses its own challenges. Um, if you detain someone and you injure them, uh, you open yourself up to lawsuits. So a lot of businesses, a lot of the chain stores have made the calculation that it's easier to just let people take things and leave than to risk a lawsuit or some kind of um, retaliation um, for um, stopping the, the, the thief, you know, and also, you know, I think they're generally want to avoid some kind of altercation, you know, that could also spill out onto the street or could injure another um, a patron of the store. So um, we're, we're at a funny point right now in New York where I think obviously we don't want to encourage theft and we don't want to allow people to just take 
whatever they want from these stores, but there isn't always a clear answer in how to stop them. Um, and I, I don't believe even the police know how to fully respond to these incidents. Yeah, it's an interesting and insightful exchange you had with David during the story where it does seem like he worries about getting busted, but he just kind of makes – he takes steps to to reduce the possibility that he will. It's not something that stops him at all from doing from doing his, his shoplifting. Let me just ask you this. It's another little piece that was almost in passing in the story that I think maybe if you're going to do a follow-up, I'd be interested in reading about – is there's apparently a network of places that fence the stuff that these guys steal, right? They don't necessarily go out onto a street corner and sell it. There's a, there, there is a supply chain that work here that keeps this criminal activity going, right? That's right. Um, what I was told is that the stores, which are generally clustered in Midtown, are uh, they have an agreement with these thieves uh, that they will pay 25% of the sticker price. So... From the standpoint of someone who is doing the stealing, I think uh, you want to get enough high-value items in order to make it worth your while for that day. But you want to stay under a certain amount that will open you up to um, felony charges. Um, so if it's uh, – you want to avoid grand larceny, I think, is, right. is the general thing. And you know, going back to this idea of consequences, I think if you are someone who is going out and stealing every day – at some point you do get caught. And if you do get caught and then you realize that you go into the, the system, maybe you get held for a day or two, you get a DAT ticket or you spend, you know, a couple of days in jail and then they release you. There's a lot less to be afraid of. Right. Because you've been. So we're, 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 we're talking to, thank you. We're talking to, to, to Stephen Yang. He wrote a great story in the New York post about following someone named David, um, David Gonzalez, 42 year old guy he used to be a, FDNY EMT, just to make it, just to, to kind of uh, wrap up our conversation, at the end of your story, you reach out and connect with David's mom. What was that like? David's mom was very welcoming and very kind. Um, I could tell immediately that she, just the way she spoke about him, um, that she had come to accept certain things about him, that she still loves him as a son. Um, and it was heartbreaking to to hear her side of things because often addiction hurts the family and the friends the most, you know, the, the addict can kind of keep on using and keep on going into oblivion and, uh, you know, going and ignoring their present reality. But the people around them, the, the ones that are closest to them often suffer because they have to watch the decline. They can see it before the addict sometimes even sees it. And, um, you know, her, her standpoint at this point is just acceptance, you know, and this idea that, she cannot change him. She wants to be there for him. She wants to spend time with him. She wants to be connected to them. Um, and she's hoping that one day he finds his way back, you know, and that he can he can stop doing drugs. But the best that she can do is uh, just keep on showing up for him, which is yeah. tragic. Yeah, you've all- you've listen, you've you've touched on a, a few different things here. You know, I've, obviously, the some people are going to read in this the challenges of dealing with shoplifters, but many people are going to read it the way I did, which is just the how traumatic it is for family members of those addicted. And just to to make it to make it very clear, you know, David is in addiction. He is not. He doesn't show any signs throughout your story. Maybe it doesn't come through that he's trying to to kick it at all. It seems like he's just he's living a life of an addict, and that 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 wreaks havoc. On the stores that he's going into, it wreaks havoc on his family, on society. 
And I really want to thank you for bringing this story to light. I encourage people to to get a hold of it. You can Google Stephen Stephen Yang's name. Stephen, do you have a social media handle that they can find your stuff on? Yes, my Instagram is the West is Blue. Terrific. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. We appreciate it. When we come back, we'll take a few fo- uh, follow up calls. And then at the top of the hour, Curtis Lee will be here for Left versus Right. Thank you for joining us here on The Middle. See you on the other side. Finding new ways to make change. Reaching across the aisle to work with both sides. This is The Middle with Anthony Weiner on WABC. And welcome back to the middle. R.E.M. bringing us in. It's the end of the world as we know it. Maybe it's not that bad. It's a beautiful day outside here in New York City. We're dealing with some heavy issues. Conversation with Stephen Yang about the story he wrote about David Gonzalez. Really, you really have to go take a look at it because, um, sure, if you just want to look at the top line, we've got people who are living on the streets and that upsets us. But these are human beings who are dealing with real challenges. And for someone who has struggled with addiction himself and someone who lost a brother to addiction, um, I recognize a lot of that. And it also shows how vexing these problems are. We can try to reduce them to political talking points. But they're heavy stuff, and these are human beings behind it. 800-848-WABC. Let's go to the calls for the final few minutes here. I really appreciate you joining me on The Middle. By the way, you can get all of the episodes in podcast form. They come out uh, almost immediately after we go off the air. You can subscribe on Spotify, Google Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can always go to the Red Apple Podcast Network, and they have all the episodes there. But let's go back to the phones. Um, Sal in Long Island, you've been waiting a while. Thank you so much for your patience, my friend. Hi, Anthony. How are you? I'm well, Sal. Um, I I love to listen to your show, even though I don't agree with you 99% of the time, but it's still (laughs) okay. Uh, uh, January 6th, right? We have, you know, this January 6th going on for a while, and I don't think it's making any difference. But anyway, then you have, on the other side, you have Chuck Schumer literally calling for somebody to go and kill Supreme Court justice, and you have no problem with that? Yeah, he didn't do that. How? He didn't do that. You, you've you seen the shortened version of the story, of, of no, the, the quote. I, I saw the whole thing. Oh, you did. Okay, so you saw he was making a political point that the Supreme – he was making the point that I made earlier. The Supreme Court has become – people are not going to to accept what the Supreme Court does. They're, they're going to basically say, look, we are, we are done with the Supreme Court here. We don't believe – or what's going to happen is the Supreme Court's going to get expanded. It's just going to be another branch of government. I mean, look, I will agree with you on this point, though, Sal. I think that everyone has to be super careful about the way they phrase things because there are people who are literal and maybe don't understand the metaphors of like we're going to take you on and defeat you, meaning that's a political thing to say. But by the way, I, you were pretty dismissive of the of the conversation that uh, that, that took place at the hearings on, on January 6th. You surely are upset by those things that you heard, aren't you? I'm not upset at all because they all they are all made up story. There is nothing true to that. Made up by by all of Donald Trump's own officials. Why would they do that? No, no. Those Donald Trump officials, they just they just you know they just started to they just want to stab him in the back. But if you say if you look if you look if you look the the, the whole story is the riot started even before Donald Trump finished the speech. 
But the, but it what but this but yesterday but the, the hearing the other day was not even about the riots anymore. It was about them them trying to put fake electors in. It was about them trying to send a letter to the to the state of Georgia that wasn't substantiated by the facts. About them having saying repeating accusations that weren't true. About raising millions of dollars saying things that he knew weren't true. You must be upset by that, no? What, one more quick question. Sure, when buddy. Is the last time the last time the Democrats uh, certified an election was in 1988. Ever since, they never, ever, ever agree not, on the results not, of the election. First of all, never. not agreeing with the results and not certifying or trying to overturn them are two very different things. No, saying, they, they saying, that, saying that I don't like the Electoral College is not the same as, 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 as trying to stop it by, by, by overturning the, the when, I mean, the, I, I'm curious, when was the last Democratic president that didn't show up at, at the inauguration of, of their successor? Oh, I don't know that. I'm, I'm in Never happened. Only 20 years. But one thing I know for a fact is this election was stolen, and that is the fact. All right. All right, Sal. Well, you're entitled to have that view, and I'm glad I gave you that much time. And, Sal, by the way, please call us back. I, I enjoy your calls when they happen. George in Garden City, go ahead, George. Yeah, hi, Anthony. Hi, George. Uh, I'm a retired court clerk. I was a court officer. I think I knew your father from the court system. I didn't call about that. I called about the gun law, and I don't think it's going to have a big deal with it for the following reason. We at the court could take a policeman's gun and have him check it in with the court officers if he was testifying there. And I think the city has a right to say you can't bring your, uh, you know, your licensed gun into a city building, and the transit authority has a right to not let you go on the subway with it. So store owners who have guns, a lot of them take the subway. So unless they drive to the city and walk around the city, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. Maybe I'm not looking at it. No, you might be right. But here's the problem that came up with the decision as it was written um, by Justice Justice Thomas. He said that there has to be a traditional underpinning to the restriction. And a lot of the things, like there was no subway, there was no trains in the 1800s. So it's hard to figure out what he means. Now, they do say in the thing, but you can still have restrictions around sensitive areas. Well, what does that mean? It's funny. They mention in the decision polling places. We have polling places on every three corners. So maybe you're right. Maybe the effect will be not as much as we think. By the way, and I'm going to talk a little bit about this with Curtis at the top of the hour. You know who likes this decision? Defense lawyers. Because very often um, uh, having a legal gun that is concealed is the way a lot of people wind up getting arrested and doing time. And one of the ways that they get guns off the street is not that they have a legal gun, but it's concealed. And so they throw the book at them for that. I mean, George, you might be right. And you're a retired court clerk. You've got much more experience with this than, than I do. That maybe there are ways to pass laws that just expand the entire city to being a sensitive area. Um, Justice Comey, when she was asking questions, kind of in, in implied that this might be the way, uh, the way to do it. Um, look, these decisions, and thank you, George, for calling. Call, call us back again. Look, the bottom line is for me is I believe that the Supreme Court had, in a really difficult, tumultuous political time, had opportunities to say, look, we're going to be the adults in the room. We don't represent just the majority whim. We can take a big, long, sweeping look at the way the stability of our government, and they can make decisions that way. And one of the ways that they do that is by saying, hey, I might not agree with this opinion, but it's stare decisis. It's the rule of the law. It's the, the law of the land. In this case, three new justices get on the court, and they basically show up and say, hey, what I'm here to do is what the president that appointed me wanted me to do, and that's get rid of this right. So that's what I'm going to do. To heck with you. 
And that's the kind of thinking that we expect from legislators. That's the kind of thinking we expect from the executive branch. But that's hopefully not the kind of thinking that we would get out of the highest court in the land. And as I said earlier, if you take a look at the history here, if you want to be an originalist, well, then the Supreme Court doesn't have a say on constitutionality. The the notion of judicial review did not come with the Constitution. It came with judges. And the judges and Justice Marshall, only four judges, only uh, four of six at the time, Justice Marshall took this this responsibility and says, look, someone has to do this. Someone has to be where we arbitrate constitutionality of the other the other branches of government. Someone has to be the one to just interpret what the Constitution says and what it doesn't. And for the better part of the history of our country, for almost all of it, this was 1803, I think, for almost all of it, we have kind of lived by that agreement. We're going to let the Supreme Court do this. Judicial review will be what the courts do. But the other side of that is this responsibility that they took on that went with their lifetime appointments, which is to say, look, let's breathe deeply. Let's not do let's let's expand. Let's show progress by expanding rights that people have. We don't take them away. We grant them more as we become as we progress as a country, as we progress and let women vote, as we progress and acknowledge that African-Americans are full citizens and not three quarters, as we progress and realize that people are people entitled to marry whomever they want or they don't want. We progress and say we're not going to we're not going to arrest people for using contraception. These are rights that increase with time because the Supreme Court, that's the movement of our country, is a progressive movement with a small b. And now we wake up this morning and there's one less right for half the population. That's not a, and that's something to celebrate. That's nothing to celebrate. But what is something to celebrate is we're able to meet here on the middle every week from 2 to 3 on Saturdays. Coming up next on the other side... The left versus right with my friend Curtis Lee. Well, we'll talk about some of these issues and we'll agree, disagree, but I hope you stick with us. Thank you so much. See you on the other side.